This is the How We RevOps podcast. I'm your host, Adam, and I'm a senior RevOps consultant at GoNimbly. Aligning your go-to-market teams and the tech behind them is easier said than done. And in this podcast, we talk about how we get there. Hey, everyone. And welcome back to the How We RevOps podcast. I'm your host, Adam. And today, I'm joined by Dara. And we are going to be talking about how to show up as yourself in RevOps. Because the reality is... There's never one right answer or one way of doing anything in RevOps. So why would we want to hire, promote, or work around the same type of person all the time? Before we get started, I'd like to introduce my co-host, Dara. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hello, I am Dara M. Wilson. Uh, The M is important. There's there's other Dara Wilsons out there doing nefarious things, (laughs) not me. I am a marketer, an artist, a performer, and a coach. My nine to five uh, big girl job background is in tech marketing on the growth and performance side. And I've been doing that for almost 15 years, which is good and woof. Don't like that. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I know. It's like when we were younger, we always wanted like our years of experience to be very long and then mm-hmm. we got there and we're like, whoa, I don't know about that. How'd that happen? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> In today's episode, Dara and I are going to have a candid conversation about the challenges traditionally underrepresented folks in tech face and how we can encourage folks to integrate their work and life by showing up as themselves. And to kick things off, I'd like to know from you, Dara, What does leading a joyful life mean to you? And do you have a few important takeaways you've learned along the way thinking about this process? Yeah, absolutely. I think leading a joyful life obviously means different things to different people. And I think that's the most important part of it, that you have to find what your joy is. In my coaching, one of the things that I work on with folks the most is getting back in touch with their intuition. I think especially mm-hmm. as underrepresented groups, we are routinely divorced from our intuition, divorced from mm. what actually does bring us joy as opposed to what we should be doing. And so it really does take the rebuilding a muscle to yeah. figure out like, how do I feel when I do this thing versus this thing? Do I feel attracted to this activity versus this other activity? So for me personally, like I am a textile artist and I Mm. really, really love doing fiber art. I make art out of wool and I I got started with a weaving class a couple of years back and I just like couldn't stop. My artistic background was previously in digital art with photography and videography and I thought that's all I was ever going to do because I cannot draw to save my life. I was like, I'll never do anything (laughs) physical. But then I, you know, I found this and it just, it brought me so much joy. It wasn't Mm -hmm. something that I had ever expected, but I needed to be really open to something very different than I had as like the idea of me, even as an artist, Mm. I needed to be open to that and just be receptive as I was going through the world. But it also took being in a place where I had the energy for that reception right like i had to take i don't know if i should say this on this podcast but i had to take some time off you work. Can say whatever you want. <laughs> yeah 
I had to take some break. time off. Yeah, I really did mm-hmm. because I was so mired in not just the day-to-day responsibilities, but also the politics of the office, the dealing with uh, being a black woman and what that means and how that means people treat me and how I show up and all of those things that I needed a break to sit at home and just be and see what came out of that. And what came out of it was a lot of joy. I started doing a lot of things that I had put down before. So like the textile art, yeah. writing again. I also do comedy. I started doing a lot more stand-up. I like just all these different things that I needed to take a break to open myself up to. <laughs> I totally get that. And I'm surprised, though, because you went to undergrad at Harvard, and that was probably mm-hmm. a breeze. So you kind of already had a break. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, your your deadpan is spot on because I was like, what are what are these words that are happening right now? <laughs> yeah, I yeah. Mean, I think it's I think it's hard too because if we're gonna get full meta, like this podcast is a passion project, and mm. I think it's really hard sometimes to feel like we deserve to do something that doesn't have an immediate benefit to our career or our family. And it's, it's really hard sometimes to find that time. I think some of us found it during the pandemic, but some of us didn't. Yeah. Um, and so I think, I think it's important to give yourself that space. And it's interesting. You talked about how you can't draw. I think that like, a lot of people are like, why did you, you're, you're good at marketing and just kind of thinking creatively, you know, why didn't you kind of start with that early on? Or why didn't you do that until you were 30? And for me, it's like, yeah, I I never thought of myself as good at drawing. And therefore I'm like, I'm not a creative person. I can't do anything in that realm. But yeah, just because you can't do certain things with your hands doesn't mean you need to put yourself in that box. And it's never too late to pick up a how-to book on something that you're not going to be great at it. I feel like our society creates all this pressure of, oh, you like to draw, so now you need to be an artist. Or you need to size that craft. And we could just do things for fun. Think we all know this bread bread baking. How many many (laughs) temporary bread artists do we know during the pandemic? And it's okay. They didn't open. They didn't become this great bread artist, but they had fun doing it, you know? Yeah, exactly. I I do think that is a a really important distinction is that the goal can be joy itself. And I think people have a hard time with that, especially in a relentlessly capitalistic society. That's like, but where's the money? Like, where's the strife? Where's the difficulty? Because that's how we measure whether or not something's worth something. Like, was Mm -hmm. it hard Did you work really, really hard to do it? Because or else it doesn't count. What if it's not hard? What if it's easy? Yeah. Like, is that, That, would that be so bad? We're we're, going to hit another nerve is to be successful. You have to do something that's very hard. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's another, I think that's another big misconception that we face. I felt weird about how easy certain things are. And maybe they're easy to me, but maybe they're hard to other people and, and vice versa. 
I have something there. I think in general, in our society, we do value the hard over the easy. And we yep. do think that there is something inherently more valuable about things that are hard. I think part mm-hmm. of that is the fallacy of if we're ranking people by how much money we have, which we like to say that we don't, but people do that. That's how mm-hmm. power is allocated a lot of times in our society. This fallacy that the people with the most money are working the most hard, which is not the not truth. True. Not the truth. But as long as they convince you that it is the truth and you keep working hard on behalf of them so that they don't have to work hard, which is a part of it. I also think we're talking about underrepresented groups and for mm-hmm. so many of those groups, struggle and strife has been a part of the history and has been a part of the identity. And mm-hmm. you necessarily align your values with that because that's what your life is and you need something, like you you find pride in what you do. Yeah. Um, but then what happens when you're not in that world anymore? What happens when you don't necessarily need to struggle to survive, but you can yeah. only see value in the struggle, then you are artificially making your life harder than it needs to be because you think that that's the only way that it can be valuable, where you could make life easier. This is going to be controversial to say. The thing that is that has been my main career is like using left-handed scissors for me as a right-handed person. I am very good at what I do, and mm-hmm. it is a learned skill that is not easy for me. When I am coaching someone, it's easy. It comes mm-hmm. easy to me. It is like well within my natural skill set. And there was a long time where I felt guilty about coaching, about like going in this uh, realm of life where things were easier because it felt like I was cheating. Like you're not supposed to be able to make a living doing things that are easy and that you enjoy. It's supposed to be hard. And don't worry, the hard will find you. That's the part. (laughs) That's the part that's important to keep in mind. Like, it's going to be hard. The hard will find you, but you don't need to seek it out in order to try and find success. I love that. Let's all give ourselves a break and feel good about the things that come a little bit easy to us. Yeah. Yeah. So I know one of the biggest challenges when you think about being successful and working hard is you know, you run against burnout. And so mm-hmm. the tricky thing about burnout is once you're burnout, it's hard to get unburnout. So what are some some areas you would like to tell folks to look out for so that way they can kind of start to hit the brakes or throw on the hazards before a catastrophe happens? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, <laughs> I just want to reemphasize, it is so hard to come back from burnout. And I don't yeah. know if we talk about it enough. The length of time that it takes to recover is astounding. And you think, ooh, I'm a little tired. I'm going to take a week off. Like, mm-hmm. no. <laughs> no, yeah. I had at one point coming out of a really traumatic and toxic working situation after six years at a place. Mm-hmm. I It was bad after two weeks, but I stayed for six years because it was hard and that's what you're supposed to do. And I, I finally got myself out and I was like, I'm going to take some time off. Maybe I'll splurge and take like two months. And I couldn't go back to work for a year. I stayed out for a year. Like I did other things. I was, 
I hosted a, a podcast four days a week that I was also producing. Like I was doing things, but I couldn't go to an office and do a nine to five for a year. Took that long for me to recover from wow. that experience. So I just, I want to double down on every time that you are ignoring these things you're just racking up time later that you're going to have to spend and money that you're going to have to spend later to recover. But in terms of things to be aware of, ways to stave it off, one of the things that I like to say is, one, is it's really important to know what you can do, what your capacity is, and and how much time it takes for you to do those things so that you can set proper expectations for yourself and the yes. people around you. Yes. We tend to be very, very bad at that. I would say yep. on average, people I work with underestimate how long something is going to take them. They, they put it down by a third. They say, oh, this is going to take me 33 minutes, and it takes them 100 minutes. We are so bad at it. So what ends up happening is you set poor expectations. You have told somebody you're going to get something done. It takes you so much longer. And then you end up with all the stuff on your plate that you don't actually have time to do. So you squeeze it all in and then you're tired. And then when you're tired, things take you yeah. even longer. Uh, so yeah. then you get more tired and it's just like this, this really frustrating cycle. So actually doing exercises, like I literally work with people to figure out how long their normal tasks take so that they can do a better job of regularly setting expectations. The second thing is when you are done with the things you said you were going to do, also controversial, I'm just full of it today. Stop. Stop working. <laughs> yeah. Yes, there is the go above and beyond. My advice is to go above and beyond in quality, go above and beyond in demonstrating your value but mm -hmm. don't just keep working because there are more hours in the day because yeah. eventually it will catch up with you. You're not going to be able to do that forever. So when you totally. have gotten done all the yep. things, you need to stop. And you don't totally. have to be at the point of exhaustion in order to deserve to stop. You're allowed 100%. to just stop. <laughs> yeah. And I was having a conversation with a friend the other day who's harvard he's doing research <laughs> there and he was just talking about all these different things and i'm like hey man you're burnt out and he's like no and i'm like listen we're in our mid-30s you might be in a school and you might think about how your brain was at as a 21 year old but you can't just keep jamming your life full of stuff as a means to be organized and productive and to have good outputs the weight on top doesn't increase the output below we're humans there's only so much we can do and there's got to be other ways for you to structure your outputs or increase your outputs without just filling your life i think it's so hard in these jobs where there's not a really clear set of hours mm -hmm. to to create those boundaries and understand where the work starts and stops i mean i know real estate agents really struggle with this in the modern world when, when anyone can reach you on your phone it's so hard to right. cut things off, I have to think 30 years ago, sure, through implications or demands, you could be forced to work late, but no one could email you at eight and expect you to answer that. And right. some of us are fortunate, like my CEO, Jen, said something at a leadership camp, like, 
Hey, if you're slacking people late at night, I think you're disorganized. I don't think you're shooting for the stars. And I was Mm -hmm. like, wow, that's so great. I feel very privileged to have a leader that thinks that way at my organization because I think some people think that way and a lot of people don't. And it it just really kind of creates that unfortunate grounds for burnout. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, The boundaries are so important. The other thing that I just thought about when you're talking about your friend, yeah, you can't keep the same pace you did when you were 21. And part of that is because, you know, getting older is getting older. But also part of that is because we don't recover from all of the energy that we expended when we were 21. (laughs) This is just like stacking years and years and years on top of each other. I like to say I have a bone to pick with bath bombs and that kind of self-care. I I really don't. (laughs) Consumptive self-care. Yeah, like a candle is not self-care. I I don't believe in that. Um, Mm -hmm. Not to say that small things don't count, but I just think there has to be more intentionality behind it. When you're doing your work and your boss asks you to do something, you do not throw your boss a candle and say, good luck. You put in real work. So then why would we expect on the opposite side when we're trying to recover and we're trying to take care of ourselves that burning a quick candle is going to do the same thing for us. It doesn't. And then years later, we can't figure out why we can't do, I can't send this one email. We're like, well, you're not sending one email. You're sending one email on the fumes of the energy that you, the reserves that you've been digging into for years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd like to pivot to an honest and candid conversation around traditionally underrepresented folks in tech. And the reason why this is related to RevOps, because people are probably like, this is how we RevOps podcast. It is. And revenue operations is completely centered around the buyer's journey and optimizing that, understanding that, and making revenue off of that. And you can't do that if people on the team don't have different perspectives and different points of view and different philosophies and beliefs in their lives. I'm very passionate about that. So we'll get into that in in a second. But Mm -hmm. what is the term traditionally underrepresented mean to you in, let's just say, the tech space? To me, traditionally underrepresented means traditionally excluded. Traditionally, the space was not made for these people, and therefore, even Mm -hmm. when we invite them in, it's wildly uncomfortable, and we pretend like they should just fit in like everyone else, and that's not the case. Mm -hmm. And traditionally, people who are given an extra layer of work to do that other folks do not have to. Some people get to go to work and show up and do their job and go home, and wreak havoc and (laughs) other people have to show up, do their job and try to teach the people not to wreak havoc. I shouldn't use have to in that, but maybe feel compelled to for their own reasons. So the environment can be challenging for those groups. So what can people do or an organizations do to be more aware of that or to create space for different types of people to show up at work? You know, the first thing that I would say is there needs to be a real decision about whether or Mm. not you actually want to do that. Yeah. If you actually want to be a company that is interested in improving your bottom line, because we all know that companies with more diversity make more money. Yes. 
I'm going to just cite, like, there's a McKinsey study yep. that I'll link in the comments. I've seen multiple scientific studies. Mm-hmm. More diverse companies make more money. Like, this facts. is the only non-controversial thing I will say. <laughs> <laughs> more diverse companies make more money. You can decide to be a company that's actually going to make that investment and do the hard work that goes along with that. Or you can decide you want to be you wish you were that company and Mm -hmm. do some hand waving that ends up doing more harm than good because what I believe can cause as much, if not more harm is pretending to care, getting people in based off of that pretending and then essentially gaslighting them into thinking, no, we care about you. We care about this thing and that thing and this thing. And therefore any discrimination you are feeling or experiencing is not real because we care about these things here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it can, it can feel extremely dismissive. The other thing I would say is it cannot just be the underrepresented groups doing the work to make percent the space more inclusive for those people because they're not the ones causing the problems. Yeah. Right. Like I, I have personally fallen into that trap of, well, in I my think most that goes... earnest way, just being like, "Yeah, I want to help. Please read this book." <laughs> yeah. And you know, if the will is not really there, it doesn't work. Yeah, that's really true, and I think it also goes back to this idea of proving yourself. That's another way that that shows up is thinking you either need to be completely silent when you see a problem, or you mm. feel misunderstood, or honestly not treated appropriately or you feel like you have to go the other direction and it's now your responsibility to to lead the charge around why being more inclusive could be beneficial to the team or the company right i just the last thing i will say is that beyond it can be a trap to be the person trying to cause that change while you are also experiencing the discrimination or whatever else is happening. It's also important. It's very important to have a really active support system that you can tap on outside of your work environment. Sometimes you can find those people inside of work as well, but people who know you, who know the quality of your work, who know your personality, who know all these things about you, who you trust because people are going to start telling you things about yourself that are not true. And Mm. they will tell you them in the guise of objectivity. They will tell Mm. you things like, this is a performance review and I'm being objective and I'm trying to help you perform better. And I'm going to tell you that you seem angry and you should smile more and blah, blah, blah. blah. Like, obviously those are ones that are so on their surface. You shouldn't say these things about, but there are times when they're more insidious and you need to be yeah. able to lean on that community 100%. to help you hold on to that sense of self in the face of that kind of feedback. Because not all of the feedback you are going to get is going to serve you. And the people who are giving <laughs> it to you do not even know that they're doing it all the time, which is the sad and like really nefarious part of it. Yeah. I I completely agree with that. And it's really challenging when you hear things like feedback's a gift. And I agree that being more open to feedback and 
not fearing negative feedback has helped me professionally. But just because something comes out of someone's mouth does not mean it's constructive, nor is it always appropriate. And it is so helpful to have that sense of support in the workplace if you can and just having that close. And it's really hard too in a remote world because we don't see each other as much. We don't remember. It feels kind of like a burden to reach out to people sometimes. So I think now more than ever, it's really important to remember who your advocates are. Absolutely. And right. Well-considered, thoughtful, well-given feedback is a gift and all feedback is not that. (laughs) I also think the people who, especially it's interesting mid-career, people who find themselves having done well are people for whom it's important to be receptive to feedback. And that is also Mm -hmm. sometimes weaponized against those people. Like, The fact that you're so open to feedback makes you vulnerable to this kind of sneaky negative feedback that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. I'll just say something I've really struggled with as an openly gay person is just my personality. So Mm -hmm. there's, there's versions of it where people love it. And I wouldn't say my personality represents every gay person out there, but I will say that me, Adam, showing up, people love the energy, people love certain things. That's gotten me into tricky situations sometimes. I'll say that I understand emotions because I can consider myself a very emotional person. Mm -hmm. So I think I've created a lot of success for myself by understanding other people and being a good listener because I don't like it when I'm not heard. And I think the double-edged sword of that is when things aren't going great, one of the worst (laughs) days in corporate America was I had just set up a trade show wrong and I was in a sales meeting and they're like, oh, and then this didn't arrive. And then the giveaways were not working. And it wasn't even like I was being attacked, but I just, for the first time ever, felt like I just needed to walk out of the meeting. It was crazy. I'd never felt that attacked before. And in a place where my guard was a thousand percent down because Mm. it's an office. Mm. And I just said, okay, all right. And so my portion of the meeting was over. And normally I wait till the end of the meeting. And I was like, I'm going to go grab a drink of water. No big deal. And start to walk out. And everyone's like, no, no, don't leave. And I was kind of already out the door. And I really didn't even think anything of it. And just like caught a breath, caught a drink of water. Everything was great. And then I get a note from my boss who didn't work in that office and was like, I heard you stormed out of the meeting. I heard that, you know, you just, you know, you got to get thicker skin. They gave me an example of a time where a coworker spit on them and that they didn't have a response. And I was just And that's a good thing. I was like, I admit that I could be a little bit more reactive than most people. And that's something I've worked on is instead of dulling myself down and disliking myself and showing up as 50% of me, I've leveraged tools like understanding emotions and acknowledging them instead of hiding them. Because like your burnout example, they're gonna show up at some point. Right. And I think like part of it is just life. You know, I don't take things as personally as I did when I was a little bit younger, but it's so important that people show up as themselves and don't create that like diluted version of themselves. And I'm wondering if you have any advice other than my experience of like how you would encourage people to feel like they could show up as themselves and not feel like they have to fit a certain molds 
to be taken seriously. I, yes, I want to answer that. And first I want to say, <laughs> I'm so sorry that happened. And in that situation, you were calmly doing what you needed to do to take care of yourself in that moment. And they told you you were doing the wrong thing. And that I think is a violation and feels wrong. And I, I'm sorry about that. Thank you. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry you had to work somewhere you didn't like for six years. You're fabulous. <laughs> and you should work at places that make you feel as fabulous as you are. Well, I do think that's a part of it is that a lot of times when we're in these positions where we feel like we cannot be our full selves, I'm going to be careful with my wording here. It feels like I have to hold on to this job. And so how do I mold myself to be a person who can survive this job? And the reality is oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes you have a lot more power and agency than you're giving yourself credit for. The reason that you mm -hmm. don't feel that way is because you're in a toxic environment that is trying to yep. strip your power and agency from you. Yep. So it, it's, it's kind of like self-perpetuating almost. This is why like, Obviously, I'm biased, but I think coaching is so important because it's important to have somebody with an outside perspective be able to say, hey, yes. no, it's not you. <laughs> it's, it's the environment, and this is not good for you. That's the first thing. The second thing is I do think there are lots of things about each of our personalities not tied to our identification, but just tied to who we are that we can strategize around making us stronger, strategize towards being strengths versus being weaknesses. And that takes effort and it takes maturity and it takes time. And yep. sometimes you're supposed to go into the workforce and just be a perfect worker, but also <laughs> you're a child, like you're 22 years old. <laughs> so you're brain is literally not fully formed. So give some yeah. people a break. So for myself, I'm extremely sensitive. I had to leave a job because I was a little unhappy, but the other people at the job were so unhappy that going into the environment every day, I could like, I could feel it. And I was like, I can't be here anymore it feels so terrible so like i sometimes say i feel like i'm like walking around without skin on i'm just so <laughs> taking in everybody's emotions and everything and that could be a bad thing but also it makes me a very strong and empathetic leader and manager and mm -hmm. it helps me show up in a way that makes people know that i have their back i take care of them and if i'm giving you feedback it's not because i'm self-interested it's because i'm helping you and if the feedback hurts it's not because I'm trying to hurt you. Like it's us mm -hmm. on the side of each other and you facing this problem, not me versus you. It makes me have a deft hand at handling mm -hmm. tricky situations. It makes it hard <laughs> because I have a lot of emotions all the time, like the girl in Mean Girls who does not go here. But like, I just have a lot of feelings, but there's a positive side to it. And because I have worked at it and honed it, I know how to use it as opposed to it just happening. Mm -hmm. So I do think there's a level of like, yes, you have your personality, but also it's a workplace and you have to protect yourself. So showing up the way that you want to show up on purpose, I think is another thing that's really important. So intention. Yes. Yeah. I think a big part of it. Intention as well. is really important. And I think, 
one of the things that helps you be intentional is if a job is really transparent about not only what the success metrics are for your job, but the career path. Mm-hmm. Because I think that really enables you to be more mindful of what's really going on here. I'm meeting these criteria, someone else's as well, but the cake isn't baking or I'm not progressing. Mm-hmm. Also, I know that having the privilege to work at an organization that's invested in career paths, like they go nimbly, it's very clear like what the next step is for folks and what the step is after that. And even after that, for a lot of folks, mm-hmm. I think having that makes people worry less about, did I interrupt that person in a meeting? Or do they care that I'm wearing a concert t-shirt? I just find myself worrying less about that stuff and worrying more about what I believe I should be doing for my job. And it creates more room to actually have fun because I feel confident in my work. And I know that cracking a joke in a meeting isn't going to shift the universe's view of my performance. Right. I, Adam, I think that's so important. And I have always, after some missteps in the beginning of my career, always been really, really explicit with my leadership about what I want and wanting to know what their expectations are, even though that is an uncomfortable conversation sometimes. But I want to know, and I want you to know that I know so that you can't can't switch things up. Like, nope, here on this piece of paper, you said that performing at the next level meant doing A, B, C, and D. Here's my piece yep. of paper that shows how I did A, B, C, and D. <laughs> I will take my raise, please. And that should be the end of it. You know what I mean? <laughs> and Absolutely. In a world where there's so many isms and so much subjectivity in these in these places that pretend to be objective, you have to, again, put as much intention toward it as possible and like really open up those communication lines. A hundred percent. And I think you're giving folks some really great questions to ask in the interview process as well. Because mm. sure, somebody could have a great LinkedIn page and some really good questionable Glassdoor reviews. Mm-hmm. But if you come in and you say, what's the career path for this position? Or are you against us creating a one-pager together of what the goals are for this and then the next step. And if you hear things like, I've never thought of that, might be a yellow or a red flag, depending Mm -hmm. on a lot of things, or how often are people promoted here? What factors go into considering someone for a promotion? I mean, if it's a deer in the headlights, sure, it could be benign. It could be that they've only been there two months and you're reporting to them and whatever. But there, there is a lot of, you know... There are people that punch down instead of punch up, like as leaders. Mm -hmm. And I think we always try to dissect, is it the person? Is it the company? And sometimes it doesn't matter. And you just gotta, you just gotta find it in the interview process. Right. Yeah. It's important to try and suss these things out during the interview process. It's important. Again, I talked about intuition before. I've talked to so many people who were like, Well, I was running away from that other job, so I kind of ignored these things in this interview process. Um, Mm -hmm. So you're just like ignoring red flags and then you jump from one bad thing into another bad thing. It's also important to give yourself some grace that if you find yourself in a situation, it's like, oh, I should have known. doesn't matter. You're in it. Like, 
let's figure out how to navigate it from because I've yeah. definitely ended up in some places that looked actually maybe exclusively ended up in places that look excellent from the outside and inside is like, Oh no, <laughs> this is not good. <laughs> yeah. I feel that. I mean, I definitely have interviewed at jobs in the before times when you see an office in may or may not have been like super swayed by like stacked kitchens. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot more to the surface than just free snacks. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I've li- literally been in a, position where I said I like my commute at one point was two hours each way and it was a multi-seat commute so it was rough and what I said in the interview process for my next job because it was like around the corner I was like well I'm miserable two hours away I could be miserable around the corner and that Mm -hmm. was my bar and yeah in retrospect not a great bar And I'm still trying, like, I think they're trying to do good things. I think this is cool, but also it's a 15-minute walk, so this will work mm-hmm. for me. And they have, you know, they have good snacks and they have spindrift, which I love. So, you know, we, we make the decisions we make. people that don't yeah. love it, and I don't really like those people. Well, I mean, some people are wrong, <laughs> and people are allowed to be wrong, and that's fine. <laughs> What do they like, Lacroix? They like being haunted by flavors that used to exist. I, I don't understand. So, I want to close things out with this idea of there's folks out there in tech. Maybe they're thinking about branching in. Maybe they're in tech and they're feeling a little inadequate mm. about their skills or about being themselves. Do you have maybe? A, few quick tips on some tools or some mindsets they can leverage so that way folks can get to the next level because that's my goal of this podcast is to take folks that want to invest in themselves and stick out as superstars yeah yeah a few things one thing that i like to say is look at yourself as like a whole person and make your whole person resume like what you want Mm. your whole person resume to look like I bet it doesn't fit on a page. It won't fit on a page. (laughs) It won't fit on a page. But if, if you say, for instance, I think I might be ready to start looking for other jobs, what's the first step? Maybe make sure you've gotten everything that you want to out of this job. Have you gotten to the title you want to get before you leave? Have you, Oh yeah. are you able to say that you've done the type of projects, have the type of skills, led the type of teams, whatever it is. What do you want to be able to say at the end of this? And how do you work backwards in order to get that before you go? Mm -hmm. Um, That's good to do at many different parts, not just when you're trying to leave a place. The other is looking at the LinkedIn of somebody that you admire or someone who you see is doing well at a company that you might want to go to or that you also admire that you like and seeing the kind of things that they do that they know that might be interesting to you. Just like not trying to figure it out all within yourself, basically looking outward and getting some help from some mentors, some coaches, some friends, some other people who have done it before you. And try to lean on other people to figure out what the path looks like. And then the last thing is, and this is probably the hardest thing, but do a really honest assessment of where you are right now and how far mm-hmm. you have come. Because I bet you, if you are actually being honest, you should probably give yourself more credit than you're actually giving yourself credit for. And the first step to 
towards other people rewarding you for the work that you've done is being able to talk about the work that you've done and show and demonstrate its value. If you're not able to do that, nobody is going to give you any accolades, especially if we're talking about underrepresented groups. You have to be the first person to show and demonstrate the value of what you're doing. Absolutely. So I have a real serious question. Okay. Do you watch RuPaul's Drag Race? I don't, but I know some things. What, what's the question? Okay. <laughs> there was this, I don't know if it's still a thing, but back in the day, RuPaul mm. would grab a photo of the, of the queens when they were a child. Mm-hmm. And RuPaul would say, what would you tell this, this little boy or girl? Ugh. And oh my god, the oof, the tears. And he would say, "This is this is your best method for pushing back on your inner saboteur, that person mm. that's telling you you're not good enough." And I'm a firm believer in that. On your worst day or a bad day, like there's nothing better than just thinking of that young version of yourself and thinking, "What would they think about you?" And it's an it's a good way to be kind to yourself and to to that. remember those accomplishments because we're more than a paycheck. Mm-hmm. We're more than a traditional resume in the sense. Right. We're a whole life of experiences. Yeah. I totally agree. I also love to say talk to you like you would talk to your friend. Yeah. Would you let your friend talk? Would you let somebody talk to your friend the way that you talk to yourself? Change that language. Yeah, I love that. That's really awesome. Well, this has been an incredible amount of fun. And sadly, I do need to close things out. And I just wanted (laughs) to recap on some of the things that came out of this episode. So the first is burnout compounds. So deal with it now because you're going to deal with it later. Mm -hmm. Have a support system. Be intentional. And have a full person resume and really think about what you've done, not just on paper, but in life. Have someone that you can look up to and think about where you are and and how far you've come on rough days. And I'm wondering if I missed anything. It's okay if I did. Rest and stop working when you're done with your work. Yeah. So Dar and I actually used to work together a while ago. And one of our coworkers and someone that Dar knows is Nikki. Mm-hmm. And Nikki was on a podcast episode on customer journey mapping. So definitely check that one out. <laughs> but Nikki would tell me, Adam, I need you to delete Slack off your phone when you're on PTO and not just turn notifications <laughs> off. And that was really the first time I did that mm. at a job. And I'm like, it's a, it makes a difference. And it's not just like, oh, we just let people not answer Slacks. Honestly, it encouraged me to make a whole one pager for my team of like, this is what's going on here. So, you know, that actually helps you and it holds you accountable. Like if you're really going to leave, you've really got to have your stuff together and have the team understanding what's going on. So, right. Yeah. To your your leader's point that being able to disconnect (laughs) means being more organized, right? Yes. Not less. Full circle. Yeah. (laughs) all right uh, well i can't thank you enough and uh definitely catch you on the flip side yeah thanks